Hello everybody, my name is a poorly considered Appalachian accent, but you can call me Jacob Brown. Today I'm talking with my professor of Gothic literature. She's also an assistant professor in the humanities at the Alphabet Suit of Art and Design, and she's also a writer, Beth Ann Miller. Hi. <laughs> uh, just to start off before we get into our discussion today of Flannery O'Connor, I'd like to mention that Beth Ann has her own website, Beth Ann without an E Miller, so BethAnnMiller.com. Thank you. There is a Beth Ann with an E Miller.com, so do not be confused. <laughs> I cannot vouch for Beth Ann with an E, but <laughs> Beth Ann without is a very smart, intelligent professor, and I'm glad to have her on today. Thank you. So we're talking Flannery O'Connor, specifically the short stories. Good Country People, and A Good Man is Hard to Find, which I've always mixed up with Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old, old men. men. Very different. <laughs> <laughs> Although, just before we even get into the discussion, I've always kind of had difficulty finding ways to describe myself to people, but there was an incident when I was looking for a, a link for our essay we had to write recently. Uh, yeah. I found an article comparing Flannery O'Connor and Cormac McCarthy nice. as Appalachian Gothic, and I squealed. Yeah, so no kidding. <laughs> I think that's a good incident to describe myself as a person. That's fantastic. I like that a lot. <laughs> Does so, it happen? Do you mention it in your paper? No, because I wanted to maintain the integrity of this show as a first impressions, Fair. <laughs> unresearched, just stupid shit podcast. Nice. <laughs> so let's let's summarize a little bit uh, the stories we have. I don't want to give too much away because there's an element of like surprise and discovery to these short stories uh, that I would like the audience to experience for themselves. Absolutely. No spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> um, but maybe without spoilers, describe uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find, and I'll cover Good Country People. Nice. Okay. Um, that's quite the challenge because it is such an epic story. Um, and so I'm doing A Good Man is Hard to Find? Yes. Sweet. So A Good Man is Hard to Find is interesting to me because there's been so much critique around it. You mm -hmm. can... I mean, thousands of articles have been written about it, and a lot of people consider it to be a quote-unquote perfect short story, which I think is a really loaded statement mm -hmm. and should never be said about anything because right. it sets a very weird precedent when reading it. So just go into it organically, authentically. Um, so essentially it's about a family that's embarking on a road trip, and the grandmother figure, so there's the grandmother, the dad and the mom, and the two charming children who basically right away exhibit a lot of the flaws. I think Flannery O'Connor does this really well, sort of the flaws in humanity. Mm -hmm. um, the grandmother's very self-centered. The children are just little nightmares. Um, the mother's very complicit, very quiet. Uh, the dad kind of doesn't really care about what's going on. He's just driving. He's kind of along for the ride. So anyway, they're on a road trip. Um, they make a couple stops along the way, meet some interesting people that I think, again, have a really nice, they do a nice job representing different types of humans and different types of flaws in humans. Hmm. Um, so they essentially, I'm trying not to spoil this, this right. is a challenge. <laughs> they know that there is a mass murderer on the loose that actually is based upon um, an actual spree of killings that happened down in Atlanta around the time. So O'Connor, at the time that she wrote it, was bedridden um, with her lupus that eventually killed her. Um, and so she was drawing a lot from local news, a lot from what was going on in her own communities. So I think that's interesting. Anyway, road trip, there's a murderer on the loose, and then um, hijinks ensue. And as O'Connor is so good at, there's absolutely a twist at the end that you kind of see coming, but don't really see coming. And then you, as the reader, are left to reconcile with, you know, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy? 
do good and bad exist at all? Um, did any of the characters truly reach an epiphany that changed them in a way that might highlight some of their human flaws? Um, and again, O'Connor has, she's rooted in Catholicism. She often writes from a, like a religious lens, but does such a great job at allowing us as the readers to kind of infuse our own moral code into it and allow us to work with that. Basically, I guess that's the, the simple summary is family on a road trip, all of the characters are flawed, some stuff's going down in the community around them, and then their car breaks down because the grandmother smuggled her cat into the car and released it when she realized that uh, she was wrong about something. She would rather uh, have chaos ensue inside the vehicle with her secret cat that she wasn't supposed to bring with her rather than admit that she was wrong about something, which again highlights one of her ridiculous flaws. <laughs> So, like, one of the real classic, like, road trip stories, like... Yeah, yeah. There's a movie I don't know the name of, but it's like, they go on a trip to a, like, not Disneyland. <laughs> yep, yep. I think you're right, it actually, especially, you know, that's sort of the time that Kerouac was around as well, and, you know, on the road was such mm -hmm. a big deal, so I can totally see it really playing upon that classic American road trip, and again, highlighting some of the flaws in that, and some of the fun. <laughs> it's a very fun story. Sure. Uh, I'm not going to defend this statement. I'm going to drop it, and then I'm going to run from it before we can discuss it. <laughs> but Jack Kerouac is a bad reader or writer. Anyway. Um, so we have to talk about this because I, <laughs> I, I can't say it also, but I say it. <laughs> his grandmother funded his trip, and he's like, I'm so amazing. Look at me. I'm such an independent. I don't hate Kerouac, but anyway. <laughs> Well, no, actually, I do want to get into that. I know. <laughs> this isn't the correct <laughs> To <episode>. be continued. <laughs> Maybe we can work it into the hot take section. There we go. Um, I don't have as much intelligent things to say about good country people. Uh, you read it. You're good. Yeah. I think... So I'm going to work my hot take into the summary for good country people. Uh, you know those, like, Facebook posts? At first, it was, like, a chain letter, like, a chain email, like... If you don't send this to ten people, God will kill you. Yes, yes. Of the the atheist professor who's like, well, if God's real, strike me down. <laughs> yes. And then some member of the armed forces like punches him and is like, well, I'm God. I don't actually think that's the punchline. I don't think I've seen it, but I, I get the gist. <laughs> uh, I think the person who created that technically has a writer's credit for um, God's Not Dead. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, but this is the opposite version it there's something about the twist that feels very like it in a worse writer's hand could be very like here's the obvious moral yes absolutely so good country people is about like this really cool bible seller He's who's so a fun cool. guy <laughs> um and holga holga, holga yeah uh who just needs to get out of her shell a little bit and explore herself. And I think there's also like sharecroppers or farmers who are renting the place. The the first like introductory section is kind of disconnected mm -hmm. from it's what happens later. Yeah. Uh, and there's kind of that that same thing in A Good Man is Hard to Find where like there are distinct sections to a short story which can feel weird because Usually short stories are supposed to be very synergized, like everything yes. rhymes with something else, which I like that uh, O'Connor kind of pushes against that a little mm -hmm. bit, maybe not intentionally. But um, I am going to spoil this one because I want to. <laughs> the, no fair. I had to go through <laughs> the whole thing without giving it away. <laughs> my hot take only works if they know the <laughs> okay, punchline. Okay, do it. <laughs> Uh, the Bible seller is actually um, a collector of rare and strange artifacts, <laughs> especially stolen aids for disabled people. And I think knowing that she has her roots in Catholicism is one of those instances that helps understand a story better. Mm -hmm. um, the, the disaffection with organized religion probably plays some uh play some role mm -hmm. in the story's treatment of the the religious peddler 
Yeah, absolutely. Although Bible selling does seem like a very Baptist thing to me. Well, that's what I think is interesting, too, is that she comes from, the, she, I mean, devout Catholic, uh, yet raised in a Baptist community, raised in a Baptist state, essentially. So I think that it's interesting, too, to look at it through the lens of, you know, Christianity kind of as this umbrella of the moral code, but then she definitely has those different sects that kind of represent themselves. And I do think it might be a commentary on Baptist culture a little bit, not necessarily in a bad way, even though our... Uh, I don't, how, how did you read the Bible salesman when you first went on those first couple pages mm-hmm. when you first meet him? Because I mean, I feel like immediately we're like, uh oh, salesman, watch yeah. out. But how did you read him at first before we understand, you know, what goes down? Um, I guess I had a little bit of like, I knew a little bit of O'Connor's background as a Christian writer. So I guess salesman creeped me out so i also had that <laughs> well, stay outside bro you can't invite yourself to dinner yeah but i guess i also kind of expected this um this kind of like holistic belief in the goodness of rural people yes um which it did surprise me when that was subverted and the way it was subverted because <laughs> there's there's definitely a theme or meaning happening when the Bible salesman takes her leg, her mobility away oh, from yeah. her. I think you should rewind and maybe since we're giving this spoiler, mm-hmm. uh, describe that scene if you don't mind a little bit because it's so <laughs> like, I don't even know. It's not even sad. It's just kind of jaw dropping. <laughs> yeah. I, I think to do it justice to like recreate my feeling upon reading it, I'd have to get like real close to the microphone and use my like, sensual voice which I'm going <laughs> to spare you in your own yeah I'm going to spare the audience that but they the bible salesman convinces Holga to go on a romantic outing to a barn I don't know if it's on their property if it's just a barn I feel like you can find a lot of barns just out there in the south <laughs> probably they have um, their pick of barns yeah and they make a point of going to the I think Holga is the one who makes the point of going to the the upper mm-hmm. I think so. layer um, because he doubts her ability to do so. Uh, once up there, he's like, you know, do you love me, Holga? Uh, which is a, an interesting technique on the first date. <laughs> and I think they had they kissed at that point, and it was her first kiss, so it was this, yes, that yeah, was yeah, yeah. it was after the first kiss. And then he's like, do you love me? <laughs> Slow your roll, dude. <laughs> um, it should be mentioned that she's early 30s, but pretending to be 19, mm-hmm. which <laughs> there's got to be a meaning to that too, but I'm not going to unpack that just yet. Uh, after f- basically forcing her to admit that she loves him, um, and all the while she's trying to like, de-Christianize him with her considered philosophical nihilism. Um, but She's an atheist and she's proud of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is, you know, ahead of its time. Probably. I don't actually... Probably. I, well, I don't want to derail you, but I right. do have a thought about that. So if you, We'll circle back to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, after she's, you know, spent her time writing her r slash atheism post, um, <laughs> he's just pushing through not even listening to her he's like right okay god is dead no there's no meaning to life but do you love me holga she's like fine i love you but can we like talk about it and he's like no actually you have to show me where your fake leg meets your you know where her leg is uh, severed um which is i think alarm bell number three but definitely the loudest one. Oh yeah um <laughs> at that point your mind goes in a lot of different directions yeah none of them are good <laughs> no um and she's like that's weird actually i don't know if we should do that and she's and he's like well if you love me you have to Ugh. and she's like well, fine here it is and he's like well, show me how to take it off which Ugh. was probably like an echo of alarm bell number three but somehow louder yeah um, and she's like, I also don't want to do that. But he's like, but if you love me, and she's like, fine, okay, 
here's where it, here's how you do it. She takes it off and hands it to him. She's like, okay, now put it on. And mm-hmm. he's like, mm, don't think I'm going to do that one. <laughs> uh, and at this point, just all the alarm bells are ringing. Oh, yeah. Um, and then he's like, I've done this before, actually. I stole a woman's eye with this technique, which... <laughs> somehow would probably have been a more uncomfortable scene to read. Yeah, yeah. So Connor has some conception of, like, consideration for her reader. Uh, And then he just, like, skedaddles out into the countryside. And it turns out his name is not actually Manly Pointer. Oh, thank God, though. That's a terrible name. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I think that might have been alarm bell number one. Yeah, Manly Pointer the Bible salesman was alarm (laughs) bell number one. I, for a moment, I doubted O'Connor's ability as a writer, but it's clear that she had her a leg up on me. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> I'm trying to see. I thought that he yelled something at her as he was running away with the leg. And I'm just trying to find that line. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's... I guess after, it should be mentioned that after he takes the leg and skedaddle, he's like, I've been doing this for a long time. I've known God ain't real. Yep. You ain't so smart. I've been believing in nothing ever since I was born. <laughs> Which I think is a mic drop moment. Like, yeah. I never believed in nothing. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> well, and I think that's an interesting moment, too, because Holga in the entire story is mm-hmm. presented. She wears her intelligence as you know, her identifier, which especially in the 50s was also a big deal for a female. Mm -hmm. And it's noted in some of O'Connor's work in general that she often has the intellect as a character. Um, And they kind of in, again, in this umbrella of Christian context, oftentimes the intellect then realizes that, oh, wait a minute, man isn't capable of everything and Mm -hmm. we do need a higher power sometimes. Um, not that she's knocking intellectuals, but she's, again, exposed, she kind of explo- exposes the flaws in, in everyone, mm-hmm. not just in sinners, not just in non-Christians. Um, so Holga wears this intellect. She's so proud of herself. She has a PhD. Her mom couldn't care less. Her mom wants her to be pretty like the neighbors. She wants her to be a proper woman. And Holga goes out of her way to be kind of quote-unquote but distasteful she like with her wooden leg she's like stumping around obviously in the kitchen making a making a ruckus she legally changed her name from joy to holga which i think specifically because it was the (laughs) ugliest name she could think of exactly so she's clearly trying you know try make everything she does is to make a point and make a statement and Mm -hmm. She is convinced that she's smarter than Mrs. Freeman, that she's smarter than her mom, Mrs. Hopewell. Um, And then this sleazy little Bible salesman gets the better of her. And that's, in my opinion, kind of her epiphany moment is where she's like, I'm just as human Mm -hmm. as everybody else. And just because I'm brilliant, I also can fall victim to tricks. Um, or to love or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want to, however you want to ingest that. Um, so I thought, I mean, just that moment too of him also being like, yeah, well, you know what? You ain't so special. Mm-hmm. Really, again, epiphany moment. And O'Connor is known for those moments. You can almost always guarantee that there's going to be one. You just don't know what the nature of the epiphany is going to be. And I think that's the the epiphany moment is the thing that in a poorer writer's hand would fall flat. But having yes. these these characters connect very strongly to themes helps give that epiphany not only meaning, like actual meaning, but also a, a sense of belonging within the story. That's a really good point. I like that. Because Mr. Atheist Professor and um, Dr. Soldier and those things aren't people, they are points. Um, and they are... I mean, you can't really make characters over Facebook, although Lord knows I've tried. Um, <laughs> <You're> like, eventually. <laughs> Facebook was skipped over in the, like, like there are, like, art projects explored through Twitter and, like, YouTube, but Facebook is just a wasteland of meaning. This is kind of... I might cut this, but I also don't want to. No, no, no. I mean, I feel I the Facebook conversation, it's so interesting. Like, So you have a Facebook. Yes. When did you get your Facebook? Uh, 
2010. Oh my, how old were you? 11. Nice. My mom had to be there with me when I made it to make my age older. (laughs) I've since, like, foreclosured and, like, since, like, isolated uh, that Facebook. I've shut it down as much as Facebook will let me. Nice. Um, If you run for politics, somebody will find it, but... (laughs) I think if it says I'm, like, 36... Which I'm not. Did you have like a fake mustache and everything in your picture to really sell it? No, it was just like 10-year-old me in a swimsuit or something. (laughs) So I think that's so interesting because Facebook didn't exist until I was in college. Mm -hmm. And then you had to have your college email. And I went to such a small school that we didn't have college emails. (laughs) So I I was outside of the Facebook bubble for a long time. And then, you know, after college got a Facebook, was kind of an idiot on it. just you know did all the things that young people do when they think they're cool and i just think it's so interesting the way we relate to things now like the people i mean younger people now nobody Mm -hmm. has facebook they're like that's not cool and it was probably when my parents started getting facebook and grandparents started getting facebook that these younger generations were like "Uh uh-uh not interested in this it's boomer zone yeah. Oh, it really, it's become completely overrun. And then I think when there is a conversation, say, you know, like with a, a funky character that you mm-hmm. want to try to go farther with on Facebook, it's completely <laughs> shut down by all these ridiculous, irrelevant comments from people that don't understand the context. <laughs> well, maybe it's not that you can't create characters on Facebook, but everyone is already a character on Facebook. Oh, yeah. It's like trying to just push in a character when there's already a play going on. It's so true. And it's, yeah, we all... We all have our digital lives and our in-person lives. And I always wonder, like, say Flannery O'Connor, she was super active. Mm -hmm. Um, When she was sick, she was bedridden, essentially. I think it was, like, the last year. She really couldn't go anywhere. And she was stuck on her, not stuck, she chose to be on her mother's farm. And she would tend the chickens and the peacocks. um, And she was known for just writing all the time to her friends, her correspondence back and forth with her friends. So I imagine now what that would look like if she had a Facebook or a Twitter and it were 2019 when this was going down and she's writing these brilliant stories that are getting, you know, global recognition and she's 39 so she's still young and she's Mm -hmm. stuck in her home with her mom. Like, I don't know, I feel like Facebook and Twitter may have ruined a lot of O'Connor's magic that resonated in the 50s because we didn't have access to social media at that time. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah, it's like... uh writing was an outlet but now like everything's an outlet yeah yeah it's a dangerous one (laughs) that's why i'm i'm trying to find the perfect like six word facebook post like uh the the hemingway um baby shoes uh, six word story yeah and once i find the perfect facebook post i think i'm gonna shutter it completely <laughs> that's fantastic and it just forever will be preserved as that one yeah. perfect post <laughs> maybe i'll send mark zuckerberg an invoice for making his site better i think that's a good idea yeah. i think he'll respond well <laughs> um right so o'connor so good country people um do we want to shift over to a good man is hard to find Yeah, I will just say that Good Country People is absolutely worth the read, even though we spoiled it, because it does. It has so many layers and so many Mm -hmm. complexities that you're saying, having been written by somebody else, it would have fallen flat or cheesy or just straight up obnoxious. And somehow the way she weaves all of these components into it just it makes it work. It's really incredible. Uh, So a good man is hard to find. I do want to, as much as I can, preserve the, the the spoiler in that one. Although, I want to... In the beginning of the story, there's... In retrospect, at least, there's a heavy sense of inevitability, I yes. think, to the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, the misfit, uh, the story's gangster, is mentioned, I think, in the first paragraph. And, I believe so. like, writers... Or readers know that, like... That's gonna come up later. Probably not very great for them. No. <laughs> no. Um, and there's this kind of like rock, paper, scissors effect where it's like, well, I know what's gonna happen, but does O'Connor know that I know what's going right, to happen? Right, right. And if she knows that, then wouldn't the actual, like, a subverting thing be to actually do the thing? Yes. And there's just like 20 page long, like, inner debate of is the inevitable going to happen? Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> uh, but I think there is a moment when like all like the the pretenses drop and the inevitability the inevitable thing just happens. Yeah. And even knowing it's going to happen, like my stomach dropped when I first read that. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I think that it's safe to say without spoiling it that there's some some death in these characters' futures. Mm -hmm. We won't say who, but um, I think, yeah, I think once that scene, that end scene starts to unfold, uh, you know it's coming. And yet there's, again, the way she so meticulously sets us up for this moment, you, you don't you want it to happen a little bit, but you don't. And I completely understand that idea of like, does O'Connor know that I know what's going to happen? Yeah. But when you get to that scene, you're like, oh, she knew. And yeah. she is just going to, you can't look away. You right. have to be there for these very uncomfortable, very, I don't know, just intense moments. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I absolutely agree that there's something interesting unfolding there. And then you get to it and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> It's a, like you, you pointed out that a lot of these characters are uh, personifications of human like uh, faults. Yeah, yeah. And usually uh, in a story like that, the arc for them is sort of to like step away from that fault a little bit or to become mm-hmm. more realized. But I think in this story, they only become more that fault. Yes. That's Something a great the like the opening sets up is kind of the grandmother's. Maybe not useless, that's not like the kindest word, but she's not, um, she doesn't have much agency mm-hmm. or control over what's happening. She doesn't get to choose where they visit on their road trip, um, despite her protestations. Her <laughs> the, the kids just like tell her to get the fuck out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. get in or get out. Uh-huh. Um, and there's this kind of like expectation that characters go in arcs and they change. Mm-hmm. But at the end as she's trying to stop the bad thing from happening. Yes, we'll call it the bad thing yes. from now on. That's good. <laughs> um, you kind of expect her to be able to pull off this one moment of utility, but she can't. See, I think that's interesting too because you mentioned that she has a lack of agency from the mm-hmm. beginning. I keep making sense. Um, it's fine. She has a lack of agency from the beginning, but I also think that she had... Um, a lack of, of wanting to. Like, she didn't necessarily contribute to anything other than mm-hmm. complain, other than sneak her cat in. What, oh, I wish I could remember the cat's name right now. It's such a good one. Um, so she, yeah, she doesn't necessarily have, you know, she's no longer the head of the household. You know, her son is really the one kind of calling the shots. Yet she is the loudest. She makes her opinions known constantly. And then again, isn't really taking action to make change or doing anything. So I, I sort of wonder in that way, is it, is this a product of her kind of losing that agency in the family? And so now she's just like, fine, fuck it. Or is it, you know, is this just kind of, has this always been her? Has she always been this sitting in the back, you know, like a backseat driver complaining, never going to actually make change, just sit there and complain until something happens? So I think there's something interesting to be said about that, whether this has always been who she is or mm-hmm. if this is a product of lifestyle. Um, so I think about that when we get to the bad part at right. the end or the bad thing that happens at the end. Um, well, maybe um, kind of instead of just being, you know, uh, a, her fault, instead of her fault being just being demanding or complaining, there's also an element of complacency there. For sure. Um, which makes like raises these characters from just one fault to like how these faults intersect because you know if you have one sin you probably have many they kind of confound that way that's so true and i think you know so the grandma's the one who really brings up this idea as we know the title is a good man is hard to find Mm -hmm. and she's the one who brings up the concept of what a good man is when she's talking in the diner with um oh what's his name he has a great name too read something um if you're ever writing and you need inspiration for names just read an o'connor story it's so true they're all so good um but the the grandmother that's not even the point i don't need to get caught up on the name um so the grandmother is the one who really is talking about what a good man is and what essentially what a good person is yeah and then again she's the one exhibiting the most obvious not great person Mm -hmm. personality traits so 
O'Connor does this all the time where her characters are complete, you know, complete hypocrites in right. pretty much every way. And yet again, the epiphany you think they're going to reach at the end, if it were to say follow a traditional Bible story right. or kind of the, the, you know, the morality that we're taught in Christianity, there's always, again, like you were mentioning, that twist. Mm -hmm. So when the bad thing happens at the end and the grandmother is faced with this opportunity, um, to change, she has an opportunity maybe for some enlightenment or to have an epiphany. Um, I think it's still contended whether or not she takes that opportunity or not. Right. Um, but again, that to me just shows the complexity of character, and that O'Connor could do this in such a short amount of time and give us so many rich characters to think about. I just, it's it's masterful for sure. Um, I want to make like a couple of comparisons. Um, I think you know having writers other writers you can compare someone against can help you understand them better. Mm -hmm. um, O'Connor's treatment of uh, Christianity for one and also just uh, the rural people who she lived among reminds me a lot of uh, Dostoevsky's um, Christianity and sort of Russian nationalism uh, in that he's definitely a christian and o'connor is definitely a christian yeah. she believes in the moral the moral system of christianity but there are complexities to it yeah um and i think that's one of the parts of art that's really important you can't escape having an ideology you can't escape having a moral system that you know you subscribe to but that doesn't mean you take it completely you know on faith and don't yeah. question it and I think even though I am not a Christian and I have a complicated relationship to religion in general, I think that's what attracts me to these people is that I don't have to believe in their, like, their conclusion to still find some value in it. Yeah. I think that's a really great point. And, you know, sh they're not being Bible salesmen, essentially. Right. You know, they're really allowing us to absorb you know some there is reference to some of the creeds that they believe in and all right. that kind of stuff but again really just to absorb those the morals of it mm -hmm. and we can do what we will with it and i appreciate that because that's not easy to do it's really hard to make your point without feeling like you are trying to force somebody to prescribe to your belief so right. and i'm not super familiar with dostoevsky dostoevsky yeah can never say that name um I've read a couple things in the past, so mm -hmm. I'd love to now with this new lens take right. a look and see see how I feel. I will say O'Connor's better at it. Um, Interesting. Because I, I, Dostoevsky has a lot of um, troubling characters. What comes to mind, uh, Crime and Punishment is probably yeah. the most clear example of a, a troubled fellow. Um, and it's maybe less that he very publicly like grapples with the moral system of Christianity and more grapples with the dichotomy of evil mm. in a world with God. Okay. And I mean, I like that a lot. <laughs> he, this isn't the Dostoevsky episode. I'll have one of those. Um, <laughs> it's a teaser for it. <laughs> yeah. But there's, I get the sense that Dostoevsky is a man who sees evil, who is troubled by evil, but does not have an answer um, other than God. Gotcha. Even though he can't completely make sense of that. Okay. Um, and I kind of got hints of that in uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find, in that this is inevitable. Yeah. There are going to be bad people, and they're going to do bad things. Absolutely. And God can't save you from that, so what do you do? Yeah. And I like art that doesn't have answers, because what could the grandmother do? Yeah. Be a different person? Not right. let the cat out? <laughs> oh, I mean, yes, she could have not let the cat out. <laughs> right. But no, I really, I think that makes a really great point that it, yeah, again, it allows us to kind of answer those questions ourselves mm -hmm. instead of forcing it down our throats. Right. Really. So that's the podcast official stance on Dostoevsky. <laughs> gotcha. You'll have to make sure that that goes in the bio, like on your website, your yeah. fancy podcast website. Um, I actually have a quote here from O'Connor that's kind of alluding to what you're talking about with the way both of these authors are able to view through a religious lens mm -hmm. yet present the you know what we've been talking about and she talks about um, you know sort of writing and how she chooses to write her characters and do you mind if I go ahead. super quick it's just 
The kind of vision the fiction writer needs to have or to develop in order to increase the meaning of his story is called anagogical vision, and that is the kind of vision that is able to see different levels of reality in one image or situation. And when I came across that quote by her, I was, I was like, oh, it, it just clicked. I was like, of right. course, you know, it, I think upon your first reading of any of her stories, again, you can go through the summary and be like, oh my God, and then this thing happened, right. and then this really bad thing happened. Right. And yet at the same time, every time you return, every time you reread a story, you're noticing another level of reality. Mm -hmm. You're noticing another dimension that she's addressing. Right. And she's saying this exists and all of this comes together to mean something, which again is alluding to her idea of a higher power. Mm -hmm. um, but you can, you, know, you can choose which dimension to focus on. You can choose which reality. You can choose them all. I just, I think that, again, every time I read her stuff, I see almost as if I'm seeing it through a new lens each time. I think A Good Man is Hard to Find is a great example of that, because when I first read it, I focused a lot on that stomach-dropping moment. Yeah. Um, and then for this, when I was reading it again, I picked up on that inevitability. Yeah. Uh, and I, if I read it again, I'll probably find some reason for the, for the diner scene existing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Red Sammy is his name. I remember Red Sammy. Now. Red Sammy and his wife. Um, and there are, there's actually, um, in my opinion, as far as the foreshadowing goes, mm -hmm. a lot of it is actually visual when you read it again. Some of the, like, the, there's this comparison of the grandmother's kind of old crinkly skin versus June Star, the daughter, mm -hmm. and how she's so, you know, pure and, and newborn-like almost. Right. Um, and, you know, comparing, you know, youth and aging and this idea of what eventually happens to us. Again, this inevitability. Mm -hmm. So... But again, it's a lot of it is contrasted in her actual imagery. Right. Brilliant. The podcast official stance on O'Connor is she's good. Good, good. Yeah. She's good. So um, this might be a quagmire to get in completely, but you mentioned that this is seen as the perfect story. Yeah. Um, and you, you initially pushed back on that a bit. So do you want to kind of like... Well, I think to say anything is perfect, right. especially for somebody like O'Connor, who, as we just said acknowledges that there's so many approaches to a scene. There's so many ways mm -hmm. to look at something. Um, and I won't, I don't have the official, it's sort of one of those things that it's in conversation. People say, oh yes, it's yeah. you know, it's a perfect story. I've heard on a couple podcasts about O'Connor, um, kind of was said with a similar skepticism. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think that there can be an argument for it being almost perfect in the mm -hmm. sense of I really want to say the way the story is laid out and unfolded for mm -hmm. us the the methodical way that she is dropping hints of what's to come while also really rooting us in these characters and and um, what we like or dislike about them and how that's reflected upon ourselves as humans um, so I think the technical execution of the story itself could probably be argued as close to perfect. Um, but as we know, you know, yeah. both of us study writing, both of us are writers. It's all about, you know, it's completely subjective. It's not a style for everyone. Uh, she doesn't write in dialect, but spoke, you know, I mean, just it with this heavy, heavy, heavy Southern accent and writes to us, you know, an audience that probably either can sympathize or understand that community a little bit. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine someone who say, who doesn't at least have some type of interest in, in this small town community mm -hmm. um, necessarily latching on and saying, that's the perfect story. Like some people witness violence like this every day. So this moment in the end that we're not saying, but saying, right. um, that might not land with some people that have come from a place where violence is routine and violence is regular. Um, but rewinding, I do think technically, it's there are a lot of things that are done incredibly well, especially right. considering she was like, I don't know how old she was when it came out, but she was a young woman, like mm -hmm. late 20s, early 30s, which is wild. Which is kind of goes to what I was going to say about it being the perfect story in that like you find your own perfection. Yeah. This probably would mean less than nothing if like you read it to an Arctic penguin. <laughs> I guess we'll have to try, make yeah. sure that that's correct. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's to say a story is perfect is to kind of remove it from 
the environment and audience it was written for because mm-hmm. um you know art is subjective and to say that there is the perfect subjective thing doesn't make sense they're almost like yeah. opposites um and i think uh conversations about literature could do better to ground the actual writing in its like place in you know setting in society Do you want to kind of give any concluding thoughts about Flannery O'Connor, other good stories to read by her? There, okay, so she actually, she has so many good stories. Um, she's actually pretty well known for a couple novels that I can't remember off the top of my head. But I do want to highlight the fact that she just has some amazing titles, let alone stories. <laughs> like, where's the one? Um, I have her complete collection of shorts here. So... You Can't Be Any Poorer Than Dead is one of my favorite titles. It's a fine story. I wouldn't argue it's a perfect story. But You Can't Be Any Poorer Than Dead just kills me. Um, And then a couple that are really great to read, Everything That Rises Must must Converge, The Partridge Festival, Why Do the Heathen Rage. There are just so, like, there's poetry in some of her titles. Uh, So I definitely recommend checking them out and... One thing for me that I appreciate about O'Connor, again, as she's addressing all these different lenses in which you can read her work, I also find it that I can read it in sort of digestible sections. You know, like the things, like I sometimes need to let things settle a little bit and then continue. And even in a short, because there's so much to absorb, reading a couple pages and cut there, she almost inserts these natural like pauses for a breath and then you can continue reading more. Um, I appreciate that about her. And the fact that she was just this, like, wild, badass woman, like, taking over the world. She, when her first story came out, I think people thought she was a man and then found out she wasn't. And they were shocked that a man could write so well. But again, she was in a time period where she just kind of did her thing unapologetically. Catholic in a Baptist community. She, a woman in a man-dominated society at the time. She was highly educated at a time when she should have been considering marriage. Should have been considering marriage. Uh, Her father died of lupus, and then she was diagnosed with the same thing. But then lived like seven years longer than they than her doctors said she would. She's just a really inspiring human in many ways. and to listen to her read too, just YouTube a clip of her reading. It's her accent is so thick, and she you can almost get this sense of just she's like I'm not up here to be a presenter. This like let the story do its work, and she's almost uncomfortable in the sense that she's reading and people are focusing on her rather than the story itself. But it just overall gives you a great vibe of who she is. Um, but yeah, that's that's my thought. <laughs> the podcast official line on O'Connor is that. She's the rare exception to death of the author because uh, she's cool. Just look into her, research her. Absolutely. Find an excuse to do so. Uh, so switching gears a little bit just for, uh, I think it could be helpful for listeners who aren't as versed in the literature scene to mm-hmm. kind of hear some reading techniques, some Absolutely. books you think are good for like transitioning into a more serious undertaking of literature stuff like that it's a really good idea um what about what are you what about you first i'm curious to hear about some of your techniques so i don't overlap um i i really like writing in books and i real but yes that drives some people up the wall but it's okay <laughs> there <laughs> are more your book you're fine <laughs> yeah there are more of them we can cut down trees there's no issue with that just <laughs> podcast official stance the, is <laughs> the, the podcast official stance is fuck trees <laughs> books are better um and write in them <laughs> we're not in fahrenheit 451 so we, yeah. do, we do not have a lack of supply of books <laughs> we have an abundance yes uh i i like highlighters but i find if i have a highlighter beside me i'm just gonna highlight and not actually like write um, and I think something I've, when I first started like actually writing in books, my impression was I have to have something to say to write something down, which yeah. isn't true. Just questions, different things you pick up on, a word you like, a yeah. sentence that's working well. Um, and just just have questions and write them down so you can revisit them later. Uh, and it writing in books creates this 
like annotated diary or like it really does because you can't help but put yourself into a book and having like a recording of where you were when reading this novel can uh, be a really interesting thing yeah i think that's a really great suggestion and i've never I'd never thought of that because I've always been one of those people that writes in books. I also dog ear a lot. Yes. I know that drives people crazy. But one of the most precious things I own now is my copy of uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And the notes that I took in it when I read it for the first time, I was like 11 or mm-hmm. 12. And partially when I read through it, I'm like, oh, how cute. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't understand this thing or isn't yeah. that sweet. And then the other half of the time I'm like, 11 and 12 year olds are smart like they they know what they're doing like actively reading and asking questions and i sometimes forget because i'm so old now that uh you know kids that age middle school or late elementary whatever 10 11 is fifth sixth grade um there's a lot going on there's a lot that they can process so i think that's a great technique um and other techniques that I use for reading, sometimes I I used to fall into this habit, especially being immersed in the literature world, that I had to read the books people were talking about, and I had to read, you know, the, the super intellectual stuff just to prove that I was an intellectual of some sort, kind of like Holga, you know, I yeah. have to prove it all the time and stump around with my wooden leg. Um, and that's really hard. If you start to read something, I mean, unless you're forced to for a class, which has happened from time to time. Um, if you're just reading on your own and you want to get into it, just go for something that really, really engages you in the first couple pages. Um, and that, for me, then sets a trend where I start consuming more and more. And honestly, I actually fall back on some pretty decent young adult novels because I often find them to be super accessible. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, The Giver is a great one for me to return to. Um, I just read If I Ever Get Out of Here. I can't remember the author's name again. I'm terrible with that. But something about allowing that access, your inhibitions are kind of down, and you can just go along for the ride and enjoy a story. That, to me, then opens up, I guess, the floodgates for me to then want to consume some of that more challenging literature or some of the stuff that maybe didn't interest me at first, but it just warms me up to do that. So I recommend really just starting with something that looks interesting to you. It doesn't matter if it's a young adult novel. It doesn't matter if it's a graphic novel. It can, you know, a good story is a good story. Yeah. Um, so I would say kind of start with that. And then as I was mentioning with O'Connor, one thing I appreciate about her is this rhythm of being able to pause when I need to. I'm a, I'm a processing kind of person. I need time. I need to read something, let it sit for a little bit, think about it, and then return. Um, and some novels aren't necessarily built for that, but I can, you know, if you find your own routine, it ends up working pretty well. So I really just, I guess for me, when talking with people who are like, oh, I wish I read more, or I wish I didn't watch so much TV or something, and you know, there's no harm in watching TV, that's great too, but if you want to read, there's so many ways that you can make it enjoyable for yourself if you don't prescribe to the, I'm gonna sit down and read an hour of this boring ass book before bed because I'm an adult and that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> like, read something fun and read it even just five minutes a day. It doesn't, you know. That was mostly my experience with Jack Kerouac. <laughs> we definitely need to. We we'll need to reopen the Kerouac thing because I do have to admit I've only read On the Road once. Hated it. Yes. Um, much to you know that was very controversial. You know, most people, it's like their Bible. And that's great. I'm not knocking anybody that loves their Kerouac. I just had a very different idea of what I wanted it to be. And then it was very much what I hoped it wouldn't be, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes. So I do, I should probably read it again, give it a chance. I was like 20-something when I read it, so. I read it over the summer. You don't have to give it a second chance. <laughs> okay, good. You've just confirmed my. <laughs> Were you also disappointed then? Yeah, I, I don't. I want to have a Jack Kerouac podcast because I want to talk about how he's bad. Um, I would love to help out. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to imagine scenes from On the Road, but I just keep picturing him sick in Mexico. And <laughs> for some reason, I put it in like a ziggurat. Like he's yep. on the top level of a ziggurat. I don't, that I might have happened. That. I feel like that's probably true. You know how he wrote it too, right? Like he returned from some of his adventures and just typed it all on one long scroll of paper like an asshole. And then... (laughs) This fucking guy. This is his process. (laughs) 
it it's disappointing to learn that his grandmother funded the trip because the first like half of the novel is like I don't have money. Yeah. I want to go to California. Right. And so I can be sexist with my best friend. Duh. <laughs> and I do have to, I would have to double check my facts before officially going on the record mm-hmm. that his grandmother funded everything. But in the class I took in college, that was one of the things that I remember we unearthed in our research on Kerouac. And I was like, of course, <laughs> of course, this guy. <laughs> like, if he was actually struggling to make ends meet, that would have at least, for me, been a better catalyst to go be sexist mm-hmm. with his best friend. Um, so, I again, I won't go on the record saying it's officially 100% true, but in the consciousness that I currently have. <laughs> Even if it's not factually true, it is, like, energetically true. I, you know what? I, I'm going to roll with that, yes. It has... <laughs> it is my energetic truth. On the road has very rich guy vacation energies. It really does. And it I'm, really does. will not read any comments uh, arguing with me on this. So. <laughs> closed for comments. <laughs> yes. If I have to, I will shut down comments on this episode. <laughs> you should just sit there and just delete as they come in. <laughs> I, have, I have shadow banned the words Jack Kerouac. There you go. On the road. Um, and <laughs> I just remembered the guy's last name was Paradise. Oh, yes, yes, it was. Forgot it. I do need to. I do have to just refresh myself on that because it's been a while. But, so, um, the part. Oh, go on. The podcast official stance is don't read Jack Kerouac on the road by the complete edition of Flannery O'Connor by a couple of copies because they have different covers and they look cool. It's true. It's true. It's like collecting art. <laughs> Do you have any last words for the cast? Um, thank you so much for having me. This was great. I think that you should continue this. You're one of I love the conversations that you bring up in class, so I'm really excited that you're able to, that you're doing this. Please keep doing it, and uh, read Flannery O'Connor. Thank you, but I will have to delete any kind words said about the podcast. This is an exercise in terror. Darn it! (laughs) You suck, then. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Cool. And Yeah. Uh, As always, I am trying to pronounce words in a southern accent but you can call me Jacob Brown with Beth Ann Miller without an E. Well, one E, but in Miller, not an Ann. And that's BethAnnMiller.com. Thank you so much. That was really fun.